This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 1, The Prehistoric World. Episode 9, The Origin of Homo Sapiens. incredibly important point in our podcast. This is the beginning of the history of the world. So what were the first eight podcasts all about? Well, that was the introduction to the story of us, me and you, here today. We have already seen what's happened to us and why we physically appear like we do. We understand that we are not perfect. We are like we are because the circumstances which we live in have dictated it. We have had to become technological experts and technological innovators in order to survive. We have had to learn to understand each other like no other species, being able to climb into each other's minds using a powerful ability to understand ourselves and a powerful ability to communicate ourselves. Now it's time to realise our success and begin the real story of the history of the world. We have finally reached the point in our story where we can discuss the current human being, Homo sapiens, us. It is traditionally believed that we evolved in Africa around 200,000 years ago. As ever, I like to fill the gaps in the chronology, but today I will find this a difficult task due to the lack of knowledge. Last time we discussed Africa, we had recognised that Homo ergaster was in the Great Rift Valley around one and a half million years ago. But we also identified in the last podcast on the Ice Ages that between one and a half and one million years ago, a migration of hominins crossed the Strait of Gibraltar into modern Spain. Which hominin it is, is open to debate. I tend to favour the theory that a version of Homo erectus that didn't leave Africa evolved into Homo agaster and either another version of Homo erectus or indeed Homo agaster itself migrated northwest on the African continent into Spain, and it evolved into Homo antecessor, Homo heidelbergensis and Homo neanderthalensis. However, I might just be talking a load of rubbish due to my lack of knowledge, so I'm the last person you should listen to when making your own mind up. Somehow we have to identify how what happened between Homo agaster in the Great Rift Valley one and a half million years ago links to Homo sapiens 1.3 million years later. Chris Stringer is an incredibly well-qualified physical anthropologist who works at the Natural History Museum in London. Born in 1947, he is often invited to voice his opinions on television documentaries 
on the very subject of human evolution. So if I were you and I wanted to listen to either myself or Chris Stringer, I think I'd listen to Chris Stringer. Chris Stringer suggests through a helpful diagram that even though Homo erectus or Homo ergaster, which is often considered to be the African version of erectus, likely evolved to become Homo antecessor. It is likely that Homo antecessor actually died out and did not evolve to become Homo heidelbergensis. Instead, his diagram appears to favour Homo erectus evolving into Homo heidelbergensis and that this all happened in Africa. This theory would be supported well by Arthur Smith Woodward's discovery of a skull in northern Rhodesia, modern Zambia, in 1921. The skull was categorised as Homo rhodesiensis, but is thought to be very closely linked to Homo heidelbergensis. Now, if this is true, then Homo heidelbergensis may have also migrated to Europe where it became Homo neanderthalensis, but also stayed behind where it evolved to become Homo sapiens. This would mean that we believe that Homo heidelbergensis is the last common ancestor of Neanderthals and modern humans. The Cradle of Homo sapiens During the Homo erectus podcast, we introduced the second son of Lewis and Mary Leakey, Richard Leakey, and his colleague, Kamoya Kamayu. Leakey and Kamayu were working at a site in the Omo National Park in southwest Ethiopia between 1967 and 1974 and recovered the bones of an archaic Homo sapiens which was argon radiometric dated to be around 195,000 years old. It is this that led the scientific community to accept a date of around 200,000 years ago as the likely emergence of the first Homo sapiens. It has also led to the area being labelled as the cradle of Homo sapiens. However, something very important happened in relation to some other Homo sapiens remains that had been discovered at Jabal Ihud in modern-day Morocco in the 1960s and have been dated as more recent. However, methods of dating have improved since the 1960s and the age of the remains were recalculated in 2017 and demonstrated that these remains were actually nearer to 300,000 years old. A thermoluminescence technique of dating Flint associated with the finds demonstrated that they had been heated around 300,000 years ago, which supports the recalculation. This would strongly suggest that Homo sapiens were already well on the way to evolving into the modern animal much earlier than originally thought. It would appear that if we want to understand the evolution of human species, then we should refrain from being so definite about putting dates and locations on this subject 
which can often be our nature. Homo species gradually changed over a long period of time. So each generation, hominins would have slowly become more and more like we are today over a very long period of time. While these generations are coming and going, they are also migrating over long distances as many animals do. We would have been constantly exploring our range opportunistically. We can be fooled into thinking that if one of our ancestors curiously migrated over the Strait of Gibraltar from Africa into Europe, that his son would not have migrated from Europe back into Africa for the same reasons. There's no reason for migration to be a one-way thing, like a mysterious portal that opens and doesn't reopen for thousands of years. If we stop trying to be so definitive, then our understanding will surely improve. Physical Characteristics Homo sapiens have become a distinguished species for the following reasons. The face had become somewhat flat. If we look at our ancestors, their faces protruded by comparison. Our body shapes are slender and long. We are much more athletic compared to our ancestors and our long limbs allow our bodies to regulate heat well for when we are being athletic. Our skeleton is more lightweight which also helps our athletic nature. Our brain had evolved into the large brain that we have today, much bigger than our ancestors, but similar to our cousins, the Neanderthals. Our teeth are comparatively small compared to other hominins, as we choose easier to chew meats, such as seafood and soft fruit and vegetables. The other important physical development is within the pharynx and the larynx, which facilitates our very advanced ability to talk. Our speech can easily be taken for granted, but it is a very intricate and subtle control of our breathing apparatus and our vocal tract that enables us to speak in such a complex and articulate manner, and something that our ancestors would surely not have had. Even our cousins, the Neanderthals, could not speak with the skill that we do, but even they would be considered to have advanced vocal ability. Pregnancy and childbirth. So, Homo sapiens is the most perfect human being ever, as it is the only successful species in the Homo genus. Well, not really, I'm afraid. Our evolutionary development has come at a cost. Two physical developments have come into direct conflict with each other. Firstly, our encephalization has caused our heads to become oversized and that requires the birth canal of the female pelvis to become larger to allow for the larger head to emerge successfully. However, you may also remember that in our evolution, the requirement for the human ability to run was when Homo erectus became totally upright and slender. This means that the pelvis had to become more streamlined and economically shaped. It's a sad fact that the reduction in the bulkiness of the pelvis has not helped in the pelvis's requirement to be larger 
to enable the larger baby heads to emerge easily. The problem is thought to have been a problem since the era of Homo heidelbergensis, which is the likely common ancestor of Homo neanderthalensis and Homo sapiens at least 400,000 years ago. Fossilised Neanderthal remains have been relatively easy to find by comparison to other hominins, and as such, a study at the University of Zurich has identified that Neanderthals were subject to the same issue. The labour of childbirth is an evolutionary flaw that we believe existed for Homo neanderthalensis as well as Homo sapiens. Although it is claimed that Homo neanderthalensis had a wider birth canal with the baby having a longer head. It is supposed by an, another older study that the gestation period for Neanderthals may have been longer, maybe even an entire year. If this is true, then the fact that our gestation period is nine months may also be an evolutionary necessity and that we have had to evolve to give birth sooner than we should, leaving babies more underdeveloped at birth than nature intends. This really is a great aspect for demonstrating that evolution is subjective and that it can be a naive assumption that the human is becoming more and more perfect. All we are doing as an animal is adapting to the latest set of circumstances to which we are born into. Therefore, the fact that the quaternary glaciation happened without warning, the otherwise reasonably advanced Homo habilis would have had to start evolving different modifications to the ones that had originally evolved as a result of a different set of environmental pressures. Evolution has to expect the unexpected and evolution has to change its direction to deal with new pressures and the pregnancy and childbirth aspect is a fine example of conflicting pressures causing an evolutionary problem which is far from perfect for our species. Mitochondrial Eve On the subject of maternity, we can already now consider our own individual ancestral lineages. There are 7.6 billion individual Homo sapiens alive on the planet today and every last one of us can trace our parentage back to the same point, which on the face of it makes sense. However, determining when our common ancestors existed can seem like an impossible task. Some might think that we may have all descended from a man and a woman who lived in ancient Greece or Egypt, while others may guess that we descend from a pair of apes who lived six million years ago. Who could tell? The answer lies within our DNA, or our dioxyribonucleic acid, to give it its full name. Our DNA is the stuff within us that contains the code for our development. It's a bit like the computer program that is used to help us grow correctly. So our DNA will determine things like our eye colour and how good we might be at doing crossword puzzles, just as an abstract example. Every single cell in our body will contain our DNA and therefore our own individual code. DNA can be useful in a number of different areas. As DNA 
is somewhat passed down to us from our parents with minimal variation, we can compare a mother's DNA to her daughter's DNA and recognise the similarities well enough to be able to confidently recognise the relationship. Should you find a lock of hair at a crime scene, you can read the DNA of the hair to determine exactly who it belongs to and then potentially link them to the crime. Not only can we extract DNA codes from living individuals, but we can also extract it from our deceased ancestors. When we do this, we can start to plot maps of similarities over land and time. We call this our phylogenetic tree. The phylogenetic tree is made up of haplogroups. Now, if this sounds like it's getting extremely technical, then let me leap forward a little bit into the material of our future podcasts. In our next podcast, we will be exploring Homo sapiens expansion and how we colonise the world. Our belief is that a particular haplogroup of Homo sapiens are the ones who migrated out of Africa where we first evolved. This haplogroup is called L3 and is thought to have originated in East Africa roughly 95,000 years ago and is thought to have partially migrated out of Africa sometime after 74,000 years ago and is believed to be the origin of all humans whose ancestry is from anywhere not in Africa. We can determine all of this information purely from DNA study. It is for that reason that we can also take a guess as to when the last common direct mother of each and every one of us was alive. So if I refer to me and you listening right now to this podcast, whoever we both are, we can trace back through our respective mothers and their respective mothers and their respective mothers and so on and our matrilineal lines will converge to the same woman no further back than a particular woman who once lived regardless of who we both are. This woman is called mitochondrial Eve and through DNA analysis we can determine that she may have been alive around 200,000 years ago. This is hotly debated though, with some claiming that she is a lot older or a lot more recent. So if mitochondrial Eve is the direct ancestor to us all through the female line only, then her male equivalent, called Y-chromosomal Adam, the patrilineal father to us all, would surely have been alive at the same time. Well, that is an incorrect assumption. There is actually no valid reason why he needs to be contemporary to mitochondrial Eve, as it really is quite chancy that any family line remains unbroken. The other important aspect is something that we refer to as pedigree collapse. To explain pedigree collapse, we firstly need to understand the numbers when it comes to working out our ancestry. Each of us has two parents and because each of our parents had to have two parents that means that we all have four grandparents. It just has to be the case for us all. Subsequently we have eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents and 32 great-great-grandparents. 
great-grandparents. So that should be quite straightforward and quite easy to understand. Let's look at the future King of the United Kingdom, Charles, Prince of Wales. He has two parents, Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. If we continue back, then we should assume, by what we have already stated, that Charles will have four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents, and 32 great-great-great-grandparents. One of Charles's 16 great-great-great-grandmothers is Queen Victoria, as Queen Victoria is the great-great-grandmother of Charles's mother, Queen Elizabeth II. Are you still with me? I hope so. The problem is that Charles's father, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, also has Queen Victoria as his great-great-grandmother. Queen Elizabeth II and her husband, Prince Philip, are actually third cousins. And this means that two of Charles's 16 great-great-great-grandmothers are Queen Victoria. So really, Charles has to say that he only has 15 great-great-great-grandmothers because although Charles is descended from Victoria through two bloodlines, she was only ever one person. This makes sense because if you keep doubling the number of ancestors for each generation you move back in time with on your family tree, you will soon actually begin to outnumber the contemporary population of the world. So you have to keep finding that you descend from the same person through multiple bloodlines. And this is exactly what pedigree collapse is. So why chromosomal Adam very likely never met mitochondrial Eve because they were very likely not even alive at the same time. Estimates for why chromosomal Adam's existence was possibly 270,000 years ago, but honestly, some other expert suggestions are not even close to that, so the experts can't even agree. What we do know is that they must have both existed, we just can't be sure when. Classes River Caves Let's try to get an idea of the lifestyle and development of the prehistoric Homo sapiens by looking at a cave formation at the Tsitsikama coast of South Africa. What is most interesting to us about the caves is that they hold information about Homo sapiens for a period of time stretching from around 125,000 years ago up until 55,000 years ago. Let's have a look at what was there and what it can tell us. By this time, the African continent had left the old Stone Age behind and moved into the Middle Stone Age. Although this time period is contemporary with Neanderthal existence in Europe, the Neanderthals were still considered to be in the old Stone Age with their Middle Paleolithic Mousterian tool culture. Homo sapiens from sites dating to this period and living in South Africa were not only striking flakes from a coarse stone, as explained in the Homo Neanderthalensis podcast, but they were heating the stone first as they recognised that the flakes had much more practical value when the coarse stone was preheated first. The flakes would be thinner and longer in this instance, which was a practical improvement. 
humans had developed a very advanced level of technological production which involved an intellectual thought process and a considered tool development which involved working through a number of stages to reach the desired result. Alongside the prehistoric Homo sapiens fossils and bones discovered in the Classes River caves, we can also find animal remains. Shellfish, antelope, seals and penguins were definitely on the dinner menu here. So this demonstrates that marine wildlife were now being eaten, something we have not mentioned previously. These animals, along with plant matter, were being cooked on hearths, demonstrating an advanced knowledge of fire production and control. I would suggest that these humans would have very likely been using friction methods to create fire, either by vigorously rubbing a wood tip along a groove within a large piece of wood, or by spinning a wooden rod within a hole of a larger piece of wood. I wonder how many people listening to this podcast were told when they were growing up to eat their fish, because fish is good for becoming brainy. There's a definite scientific debate surrounding the fact that Homo sapiens appeared to be eating more marine food, particularly demonstrated by large amounts of shells being found in places such as Classy's River Caves, and how much of a factor this would have been in turning us into the most intelligent human species in the history of the world. There are some things worth mentioning in relation to this theory. Firstly, seafood is quite a good source of docosahexanoic acid, which is known to be good for brain development. However, to say that this is the reason why Homo sapiens are more intelligent than Neanderthals would be somewhat ignorant of the fact that Neanderthals were also quite capable and evidently eating shellfish at the caves of Gibraltar, just to name one location. So the marine food theory might be a little bit too convenient and shallow to put forward. When looking closely at the diet of Homo sapiens at Classy's River Caves, we can clearly see what might be described as a collection of kitchen debris. This would be the leftover bones and shells of a good feast. However, some of these fire-blackened bones that display butchery cut marks are actually Homo sapiens bones. This would suggest that the menu was a little bit more exotic than originally assumed, and that cannibalism was in effect. Nonetheless, Classy's River Caves have demonstrated well the advances of Homo sapiens as a species, giving us a decent idea as to where our technological advances in Africa and compared to our cousins, the Neanderthals, had come to. Certainly, as a footnote, some paleoanthropologists have also alluded to the fact that there must also have been a strong level of verbal communication going on to share the skills and information required to be able to live this advanced technological lifestyle. Howison's Port Staying in South Africa, another significant site is the Rocks Shelter near the south coast of the African continent called Howison's Port. The rock shelter has been of archaeological interest since the 1920s and is believed to have been the base of a hunting community of Homo sapiens around 60,000 years ago. Howison's port stone artefacts contain 
crescent-shaped stone flakes, which are believed to have been attached to wooden shafts with a type of adhesive material. This is something we have come across in the Homo Neanderthalensis podcast, when the Neanderthals were apparently heating beech bark to produce a sticky tar substance for the same purpose, the hafting of sharp stone blades and spear points. What is more interesting about the Homo sapiens manufacture of adhesive as identified by microscopic studies of the stone blades is the complexity of the adhesive. This wasn't just a tar made by heating tree bark, it was a combination of plant gum such as acacia gum which is produced naturally by the plant and ochre therefore making it an effective compound substance. Once again we are seeing the Homo sapiens were showing an abstract and methodical thought process by creating an end product through a number of clear stages of development. Construction of a suitable wooden haft, construction of a correctly shaped and well manufactured stone blade and construction of an effective compound adhesive with the intention of hafting the blade undoubtedly for the purpose of hunting. This would demonstrate the Homo sapiens ability to plan a complex construction project from start to finish and be able to communicate that project to others with an ability to identify and enhance the quality of the product through experimentation and analysis. This is a really strong advance in human technology. I mentioned ochre in the description of that process and that is the first mention of ochre in this podcast series. Ochre is going to become a very important feature of some upcoming podcasts, so it deserves an explanation. Ochre is a naturally occurring clay and sand mixture which contains iron oxide. The degree of particle size and presence of particular materials within the ochre can make its colour visibly different. So ochre can range from light yellow and brown colours right through to darker reds and purples to many different hues. This is going to play a very important role when we come to explore Paleolithic art, something that will be discussed in greater detail in a future podcast. Older Homo sapiens use of ochre can be found at another well-known archaeological site in South Africa called Blombos Cave, which was occupied from around 100,000 years ago through to 70,000 years ago, so therefore it is older than Howison's port. Homo sapiens at Blombos Cave were quite familiar with ochre, and there was apparently a place where ochre was processed, kind of like a workshop of sorts. It's not completely clear why the ochre was being processed. There didn't appear to be any plant gum or tree tar present, so that would eliminate the process of hafting stone blades. So it could have been a place for producing plant-like substances to protect surfaces or objects or even just to decorate. So this could be a place where we would meet the first painters and decorators and also the first chemistry laboratory. One thing you do find at all of these sites is that not only were mollusks being consumed, but the shells were not only being discarded in shell middens, 
but also they were being reused. They were being engraved and decorated and they were being punctured for the purpose of creating jewellery. The homo sapiens of South Africa were clearly at times living a very good life. They were eating well and at times without great pressures and able to find the time to relax and use their creative minds for more leisurely pursuits. This, once again, is a major human advance, a distinguishing feature that separates us as humans from the rest of the animal kingdom. The emergence of Homo sapiens. As ever, with all these prehistoric podcasts, it would have been lovely to have said, one day, Homo habilis came along, he did this, this and this, and then he disappeared. That would be nice and straightforward. It's just not that simple, however, as the reality of prehistoric stories is that they are open to interpretation. As we get further into the podcast, the stories will be supported more with an abundance of evidence. Prehistoric history does not have the luxury of such an abundance, so it makes far more sense that I put the evidence before you and then tell you what the experts think it means. I might be so bold as to tell you what I think it means, but it means more that you, the listener, goes away and thinks about it and even do your own research should you feel compelled and draw your own educated conclusions. The experts have changed their opinion over and over again in regards to the story of Homo sapiens emergence. Initially, it is believed that we emerged throughout the world before what is known as the out of Africa theory finally gained some credibility. The theory vaguely suggests that Homo sapiens emerged in East Africa around 200,000 years ago and that they colonised the planet. Whilst that has been the popular theory for a long time, there are some issues. As we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, a discovery was made of some hominin fossils and other remains at a place called Jebel Irud, in the locality of the town of Irud in Morocco in the 1960s. They were believed to be Neanderthal and around 160,000 years old. Now this would be consistent with our story. Neanderthal were abundant in Europe at around this time and were quite likely to have crossed the Strait of Gibraltar and settled in what is now Morocco. However, a reappraisal of the finds and subsequent new finds at the site have thrown this in the air. The fossils have been reassigned to Homo sapiens, which isn't such a big problem. Due to their age, it is still feasible for the Homo sapiens to have emerged in East Africa and migrated to the north of the continent, so that doesn't cause paleoanthropologists a huge headache. However, as we mentioned at the start of the podcast, thermoluminescence dating of some artefacts plus more up-to-date methods of radiometric dating of the fossils have pointed to a new date of 300,000 years ago. Now this just throws everything in the air. It's now the wrong species, the wrong date and the wrong location. This new evidence would have to suggest that Homo sapiens emerged earlier than originally accepted and maybe not in East Africa. However, Chris Stringer has suggested with all his wisdom that Homo sapiens 
may have emerged as a result of differing morphologies of archaic humans who branched out to remote areas of Africa's vast continent, ultimately stumbling back across one another, interbreeding and resulting in the human that we know today emerging and then spreading out of Africa. So we have to think of human evolution as a very complex sequence of events, many simultaneous and unrelated, occurring over a large amount of time. The process was not linear. It was a result of many different groups of hominins coexisting, splitting off and reuniting over and over again and evolving very gradually as a consequence of this vast web of events, resulting in a form of modern Homo sapiens made up with many other forms of Homo sapiens. Migration. In our next podcast, we will look at Homo sapiens migrating out of Africa and settling the world. In very simple terms, we have spent a lot of our time in Africa and have seen Australopithecines make way for Homo habilis, which in turn made way for a form of Homo erectus, possibly Homo ergaster, which in turn made its way to Homo sapiens, probably by way of a form of Homo heidelbergensis. What we didn't do was pick up the story of Homo erectus in the Far East and what happened to them. We also did not conclude the story of Homo neanderthalensis in Europe and what happened to them. Homo sapiens world migration will rediscover these unfinished stories and allow us to tie up all of the loose ends. As much as archaeology and other evidence will allow us to do. As ever I would really like to thank you for listening to the podcast once again. It does appear that many people are starting to discover and listen to the podcast which is very exciting for me. I always like to let you know that when I hear from you that's one of the most exciting things for me. There are two real ways that you can contact the podcast either by emailing me directly at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com that's all one word history of, of the world podcast at mail mail.com the facebook page seems to be the most popular way that people contact the podcast I had a very nice recommendation this week from a gentleman called Sean Hanson. I don't know where you're from, Sean, but I really appreciate the message. He's just said that the podcast is very well organised and informative. I guess that you're from the other side of the Atlantic from me, by the way that you've spelt organised with a Z. Of course, we only spell it with an S over here, so... Purely a bit of guesswork there, but I really appreciate your comment and I'd love to hear from you again if you've got any thoughts or opinions and that goes for everybody about the podcast, anything you want to share with me, nothing's off limits, suggestions, stories, anything that you know that you want to add to the information within the podcast. It's a mission for me to find out this information. I read many scientific journals and also reference books to try and collate it all together, to organise it and make it informative is a mission as well. I must admit there's so much information and there's so many gaps within the information to try and collate it into a podcast that's listenable. 
more than anything, I don't know if there's such a word as listenable, but I'm sure you know what I mean, the one that you don't sort of get halfway through and think, I've lost the thread here and I need to switch this off because it's doing my brain in. I find the easiest way is to present the information somewhat as I stumble across it so that you're almost following in the same footsteps that I am in discovering these stories. So hopefully I'm doing some justice to these fascinating facts and stories. So please, please, please get in touch. I'm sitting here all week, so you hear from me half an hour a week and then I spend the rest of the week just sitting here waiting for messages. I've got no other life other than the History of the World podcast. So if you send me a message, I'll wake up and I'll spring into action, I promise. That's not strictly true, but it does sound quite effective. You can listen to the podcast through a number of different forms, not least of all iTunes, in which I would really appreciate it if you could rate and review the podcast. One of the most popular places where people do listen to the podcast is through Spotify, but it's also available through CastBox, Overcast, Radio Public, TuneIn Radio. Anyway, I've gone on for long enough. This has become another long podcast. The next week's, I can't promise you, it ain't going to be another long one again. There's so much information about human migration that I've had to spread it across two podcasts anyway. So the next two podcasts will tackle the issue of Homo sapiens exploring the rest of the world. But that should be quite interesting. Our listeners from Australia and Canada, there's going to be some relevance to you and your position within the story. So something to look forward to. I'll thank you once again for listening. And until this time next week, have a great week and we'll do it all over again. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.